Now, no doubt many of you have been following the Democratic presidential primaries. Uh, although there have only been three contests, Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada on Sunday, our time, <clears throat> it's already clear that Bernie Sanders, uh, the 78-year-old self-identified socialist uh, who honeymoons in the Soviet Union, uh, he is setting the tone and the lead in the primaries. And a lot of seasoned observers, including myself in today's Financial Review, believe that he will uh, win the nomination uh, later in July. But as support for Sanders and indeed Donald Trump indicate, uh, more and more Americans are increasingly raising doubts about their nation's global leadership role. Um, but what happens if Washington jettisons its long-time US security military alliances and ends the forward presence of US forces? Now, there are many defenders of American global leadership, most notably in Washington, and they're on the left and the right. They're liberal interventionists and neoconservatives. And their argument is that a strategy of retrenchment would destabilise the regional security orders in both Europe and Asia. It would increase the risks of nuclear proliferation and aggravate the threat of major power conflict. Well, our guest speaker today fundamentally disagrees. Uh, since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union three decades ago, hard to believe, uh, Doug Bandau has been a major figure in Washington's debates on foreign policy. And he's been a leading skeptic consistently throughout the last 30 years of the notion of American global leadership, a Pax Americana, benign global hegemony, a new American century, all the buzzwords that have defined US foreign policy in the post-Cold War era. For Doug, like many classical liberals, and we at CIS consider ourselves classical liberals, um, an ambitious and assertive US foreign policy, inspired by vision and a sense of mission, would represent the kind of foreign policy that has been instrumental in building up states and their power throughout history. So as a consequence, Doug has been a leading opponent of NATO expansion eastwards, in the 1990s and 2000s. He was a leading opponent of all the US-led wars in the Middle East, the wars on terror, most notably the wars on Saddam Hussein in 2003. Doug was arguing in 2002-2003 that democracy is not an export commodity. It's essentially a do-it-yourself enterprise that requires special circumstances and conditions. And he makes the point that America cannot be a global policeman. There are limits imposed on America's power to influence changes uh, in sovereign states. And these views made Doug something of a marginalised figure in Washington. However, as I said earlier, in the Trump and Sanders era, it makes him increasingly more mainstream, even though Doug is a critic of Trump's economic nationalism and Bernie Sanders' socialism. The Times, and I think this is important, important to bear in mind, they're changing. Uh, the American people, as all the available public opinion polling shows, are war-weary. And if you think about it, the Cold War ended 30 years ago, but the US has been at war for 25 of those 30 years. That's about 80% of the post-Cold War era, America has been at war. Doug Bandau is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington. He served on the 1980 presidential campaign 
of uh, Ronald Reagan. That was 40 years ago exactly. And then he became a special assistant to President Reagan in the White House in the early 1980s. Doug is author of several books, including Foreign Follies and Tripwire, Korea and US Foreign Policy in the Change World. As it happens, I actually reviewed it in 1996 when I was working at AI, and I reviewed it with mixed results. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't persuaded by your thesis. He's a regular contributor to the National Interests and the American Conservative. He's been published widely in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post. As I said this year, he's, he is our scholar in residence. I want to conclude by saying uh, thank you to Simon Haynes from the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization for looking after Doug for the last two weeks since the, since the floods. Um, we've been scattered all across Sydney. Uh, some of us have been based at Hudson House on Level 10. Our research staff have been based at Deutsche Bank and Doug's been based at the Ramsey Centre, so thank you very much, Simon. And ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Doug Bandow. Thank you, Tom. Despite uh, his uh, some qualms about my book, we became close friends. We've known each other for quite some time. Always a great pleasure. I'm glad to be here. I've always enjoyed my trips to Australia. I've come a number of times over the years. I love international travel. I like to tell people that uh, I've always hated the label isolationism because I'm an, I'm an internationalist. I, mean, I love traveling, I love exploring the world, I love meeting people. I want to understand the world. My view is that uh, far too many people in what I call the imperial city, Washington, D.C., you know, believe they know the world, but of course have never been to the world. But, uh, and I want to thank Tom especially and CIS for bringing me here and giving me this opportunity. And thank you all you know, for coming. I suspect that U.S. foreign policy probably is of a greater interest here in Sydney than Australian foreign policy is in Washington, D.C. Obviously, you know, one impacts the other far more greatly, and I think that's the challenge of U.S. foreign policy. <clears throat> I think it's worth thinking you know, about uh, what makes for a foreign policy and some of the principles behind it. One of the challenges of a talk like this, of course, when I think of U.S. foreign policy, I'm thinking of it primarily from an American standpoint. And obviously it has impacts on others. <clears throat> and from the standpoint of other nations, indeed, a different foreign policy for America might be in their interest. And I think that's a bit of a challenge of sorting through some of the foreign policy issues. But I think the foreign policy principles matter, but the practical and prudential probably dominate. That if you're thinking about trying to a construct of dealing with the world, it really matters what that world is. Circumstances matter, interests matter, abilities, threats, allies, all of these things, and they all vary over time, and they vary by country. So trying to sort out a foreign policy is not always easy. I think alliances should be a means to an end. In Washington, you know, my, uh, my sense is that Washington policymakers view alliances as kind of like collecting friends on Facebook. Isn't it wonderful now Montenegro is a member of NATO? Wow, I feel so much more secure. Vladimir Putin will not dare attack America knowing that the Montenegrins are now on America's side. I mean, this is a very bizarre thing to do. I mean, North Macedonia. Macedonia could not come in as Macedonia. The Greeks refused to allow it, so 20 or 30 years go by, and now they're in as North Macedonia. You know, the, this kind of an approach to, to alliances, I think, raises some rather important issues. You know, the, the fundamental objective of alliances should be security. That, uh, you know, so it's a means to an end. And I think that does require a certain cold-blooded nature at times. Lord Palmerston, one of the leading uh, British prime ministers of the 19th century, famously said that countries don't have permanent friends, they have permanent interests. 
And certainly if you look at policy, you know, uh, back at that time, you look at it in the uh, 20th century, consider the United Kingdom's relationship with Russia, where it was an enemy before World War I, they're allies in World War I, they become enemies after World War I, they're allies in World War II, they're enemies in the Cold War, they're friendly after the Cold War ends, and now they're something. I'm not quite sure what it is, but not exactly enemies, not exactly allies. And I think it does show how difficult it is to have permanent relationships. You know, people who refer to the U.S.-United uh, Kingdom relationship, you know, as a special relationship, and it is, but it's had its ups and downs. Even there, there are kind of questions in terms of at what point does one come to what each other's aid. <laughs> so I don't think there's any reason to assume that alliances and relationships made during the Cold War are necessarily the best security structure after the Cold War. That, uh, you know, if you walk away from a Soviet Union, it disappears, the Warsaw Pact is gone, do you really still want NATO in its form? What do you do in Asia? What do you do in the Middle East? These are all questions I think that should be up for grabs because there really is a prudential question of what is the best way to organize the world. I think when we look at American foreign policy, it's important to realize how it has changed over time. And in certain ways, the current U.S. foreign policy is an anomaly. I think that's part of the challenge in terms of looking in the years ahead how sustainable is the approach today. If you look at the United States... You know, uh, got a, was aggressive domestically, that is, conquering the continent. I mean, you all have had issues in terms of the aboriginal population. The U.S. certainly did a very violent, essentially, conquest of North America with an awful lot of Native Americans who ended up dead in, in very often brutal campaigns. So the U.S. was not a kind of a Pacific nation, but it was, uh, it's, it was an empire of liberty focused on North America, as Thomas Jefferson referred to it. So leading up to the Civil War, the United States would never really have thought of going overseas. That was simply not within uh, the U.S. purview. That, uh, you know, kind of treating uh, Latin Americans roughly if they're on the border, that sort of a thing, but for the most part, not looking beyond. It was the uh, Spanish-American War that was at the uh, 1898 that really launched the United States, and it was a, a huge debate within the United States between uh, the imperialists and anti-imperialists. There's a famous a senator, uh, Albert Beveridge from Indiana, who gave us a, a famous speech because they were arguing, should the United States conquer the Philippines? The U.S. nominally went to war against Spain to save Cuba from oppression, and lo and behold, Spain also uh, was a possessor of the Philippines, and the U.S. conquered the Philippines, at which point it went to war with the Filipinos. There was an independence movement there, and we told them, no, I'm sorry, we're the conquerors, now we're in charge. It was a war that went on for about three years. About 200,000 Filipinos died in that war. It was a really very ugly contest. And this set off a real debate within the United States. And Albert Beveridge gave a famous speech, The March of the Flag. And he said, what is this, this silliness about territories like that not being contiguous? The oceans make them contiguous. And that was really a transformational moment within the US of a debate of America's role in the world that started moving the United States you know, outward. World War I was another moment where the U.S. had kind of not wanted to get involved in those old world imperialisms. That was one thing that almost everybody had agreed on. You know, George Washington, the first president, gave a famous address in which he talked about no permanent entanglements, you know, avoid those sorts of things. And World War I brought the U.S. in to a major continental war. And there was a great deal of disappointment over that, so America withdrew when that war ended. Kind of a disgust at Versailles, a disgust at how it all turned out. The U.S. came back in World War II, obviously, and that the end of World War II was really the one power to try to restrain the Soviet Union. I mean, the great 
tragedy coming out of World War II, of course, <laughs> was one, really two, I mean, take both Germany and Japan, authoritarian, totalitarian, dangerous, aggressive powers have been defeated, and yet another one probably more dangerous than either of the other two had been created. And the question of how to deal with it. And containment was the policy that came with that. And in many ways, containment was relatively easy. Most Americans supported it. Both parties supported it. The sense that you had to restrain the Soviet Union. There were conflicts along the way. The, the Korean War had involvement to some degree of, of the Soviet Union. Uh, it had a significant involvement, obviously, of China. Vietnam, those countries aided Vietnam and the United States. North Vietnam as the United States was involved. But for the most part, containment was military at the outside and very much political and diplomatic. And the end of the Cold War, I think, was the moment and the challenge for the United States of now what? And in 1989, there was an awful lot of discussion in Washington, essentially saying, now what do we do? There were people looking at NATO, advocates of NATO, realizing they had a problem. What do you do with the anti-Warsaw Pact Soviet Union alliance when there's no more Warsaw Pact and Soviet Union? Oh, gee. And there were serious figures who'd been in diplomatic service at the, you know, within the leadership of NATO saying, well, NATO could turn to student exchanges. Maybe NATO could help fight the drug war. You know, and this, of course, is a prototypical military alliance. I joke that uh, we could turn the tanks into you know, bookmobiles and shoot books out at people or something. I mean, the notion is you know, if you want a military alliance, it should have a military purpose. The notion, it had really become suddenly the end, not the means. We have to have NATO, therefore, let's come up with something new. And what people ended up really kind of coming up with was this out-of-area activity which is what we see today. It's Afghanistan. It, it's involved in uh, Libya, where, in essence, it was bombing uh, you know, Yugoslavia, you know, which had not, not threatened any NATO country, hadn't been involved, was not involved in any NATO alliance. You know, that what you saw is NATO kind of doing other things that really weren't very related. And the question, I think, is now what? In many ways, it's easy for others to want America to fulfill that role. You know, that's very nice. But Americans are the ones who are dying. I mean, Australians have died in some of these wars. America has an, an ability to pull other countries along. We kind of demand that NATO countries help us out in Afghanistan. So the Europeans are still involved in Afghanistan 20 years after that war started for purposes that are somewhat hard to discern. You know, but you know, the notion of the United States being essentially what was called the uni power, I mean, coming out of the Cold War, the uni power, the sole superpower, you know, which within the, Washington is to understand is policymakers there loved this role. The uh, George H.W. Bush commented at the time of the first Gulf War, what we say goes. And when he used the word we, he meant Americans. He didn't mean allies. He meant them. You know, he meant the folks in Washington. Madeleine Albright uh, came up with a number of aphorisms that I have always enchanted me. One was, we stand taller, we see further. Now, if you look at the mess the US has made after 20 years in the Middle East, it's kind of hard to give credit to that. But the problem is that's the way people in Washington view themselves. She also commented at one point, what's the use of having that wonderful military if we never use it? She said that to Colin Powell. Now, Colin Powell is somebody who served in Vietnam and had people die under him. He understood what the military was. She also said, I think most famously and most terribly. When asked about the death, the alleged death of a half million Iraqi babies due to sanctions, her response was, we think the price is worth it. That is a video clip that's been shown around the Middle East, and you can you know, certainly imagine an awful lot of Muslims have seen that, and it tells them an awful lot about what their perception is of American policymakers. 
And I think the challenge is, you know, that attitude is, I think, is waning. It hasn't worked out very well under George W. Bush. Most everyone recognizes that the Iraq War was a disaster. Barack Obama's interventions haven't worked out much better. It's almost 10 years on from Libya, and it's still at civil war, a tragedy, a mess. The Yemen campaign, I think, is one of the great atrocities where the US is actually helping an awful aggressive regime kill civilians by the thousands. One looks at kind of the mess made of the Middle East. I mean, so the question is, what do you do with all this stuff? And I think that we, we've gotten to a point where it's relatively unsustainable, that something's going to have to change, and the question is, what, what happens? That, uh, you know, number one, it's hard to see the benefits here. I mean, if the Europeans collectively, with about 10 times the GDP of Russia, three times the population, aren't able to protect themselves, one has to wonder what on earth are they doing? You know, the Germans spend 1.2% of GDP on the military. That's fine. I don't care what they spend, but they shouldn't call America if they don't want to spend enough to defend themselves. If they don't think there's a threat, which I don't think they really do, that's fine. But they shouldn't sit there thinking, well, America will bail us out if there's a problem. The answer is Americans are kind of busy. So the, you, know, you look at that from an American standpoint, and you kind of understand what motivates a, a, a Donald Trump to say what he says. I think the Middle East is even more clear. Oil doesn't matter as much anymore. The market is much more diverse. Israel is secure. Why is the US trying to fix things like the Syrian civil war? It's a tragedy. There is no doubt. It's an utter, horrible tragedy. I was there a year and a half in Aleppo. This is a city where entire streets have been leveled. It's horrendous. But if anyone here thinks anyone in Washington has the slightest idea how to fix Syria, you haven't watched US policy for the last 20 years in the Middle East. The US wants to kick out the Iranians, get rid of the Russians. We want to get rid of ISIS. We want to help the moderates if they exist. We want to you know, you know, work with the Kurds. We want the Turks to love us, all at the same time. <laughs> it doesn't work. And it hasn't worked, and it won't work. What is the US doing? <laughs> I think that you know, the US is involved in Africa now, kind of scattered around in various places. And I think Asia, and Asia is the toughest issue. I mean, the issue of China. In many ways, my view is Asia, it's kind of like China and the others. The question of what you do dealing with China. But even there, from an American standpoint, you know, it's nobody really thinks China's going to send uh, a carrier task force and attack Hawaii. The question of China, really, from an American standpoint, is influence in East Asia. And the big problem there is projection of power costs a lot more than deterrence. It costs the US a lot more to build and man aircraft carriers and the Chinese potentially to sink it with subs or with missiles. And is the US prepared to go to war to maintain dominance along China's border that the US would never allow China to have along the US? I tell people, imagine if a Chinese uh, Navy was sailing up and down the eastern coast, if the Chinese were lecturing America on its policy towards Cuba, and Beijing was filled with discussions of possible war with America. How would Americans react? They would not react well. And they'd say, build lots of stuff and make sure this stuff never happens. So I think the challenge here in all of these have kind of changed a bit, especially recognizing how badly the US has kind of mucked things up. And you think about problems. So many have been created by the United States, I would argue. Terrorism is a complex creature. But when you wander around the world bombing, invading, and occupying other countries, you should not be surprised that sometimes people get upset. And unfortunately, if you don't have aircraft carriers and missiles, which thankfully these folks don't, they find other ways to attack. And terrorism is one of those tools they use. <laughs> you think about a lot of these issues we're dealing with, as well as the cost. In the US, everyone 
I think typically likes the idea of being the world's hegemon. You know, it's a lot more fun to be the American Secretary of State because you can wander the world and everybody genuflects as you walk by. On the other hand, that's not necessarily good for the American people. Military spending is the price of your foreign policy. You want to do a lot in the world. America spends over 700 US, billion US dollars a year on the military. For what? How does that benefit Americans? And that's a question I think that Americans are going to be asking ever more. It has an impact on economic growth when those kind of resources are diverted. It has an impact on domestic liberties. War is the health of the state, said uh, social commentator Randolph Bourne 100 years ago. And he's absolutely right. The risk of war, if something goes wrong, sometimes people die. And in this case, it's not just Americans, it's other folks. I mean, I think of the horror in uh, Yemen, which I would argue the US is promoting atrocities and war crimes. In Iran or Iraq, estimates of the number of civilian dead vary widely, but a, a fairly reasonable one, given their own statistics, is something like 400,000 dead civilians. America did not kill them, but we blew the place up. We see the same thing going on in Libya. 10 years later, a civil war continues to rage. You know, the consequences, the costs are very high. And quite honestly, America's bankrupt. You know, the US lectures the world on its finances, but America's probably about the most irresponsible you know, major power on Earth when it comes to budgets. The US is running a trillion dollar deficit every year without a financial crisis. The US has, uh, already has a, a total a national debt of about $23 trillion. It's larger than GDP. We're over 100% of GDP. The, that trillion dollar deficit a year will continue. It's going to rise because of what we call entitlements, social security, elderly retirement, and Medicare, which is uh, healthcare for the elderly. Those go up especially because of an aging population, as well as Medicaid, which is a program for the poor that uh, those numbers are going up. The estimates are the US has about $200 trillion in unfunded liabilities. That is promises made to the population without any source of funding. That gets rather ugly. So the question is, how do you then manage the world while you're bankrupt? How do you afford to have a globe-spanning military when you're trying to figure out how do you pay off the promises you've made to your own people. And political support is declining. And I think that Tom mentioned that, and I think that's what makes right now very interesting, where you've got in both parties greater disquiet. Now, both parties are very complicated and very divided. You know, the Republican uh, legislative party tends to be dominated by neoconservatives who would like to you know, run the globe. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina even said, well, you know, a war in Korea, I guess, would be kind of a bad thing. But you know, quote, it would be over there, unquote. At least it wouldn't be, quote, over here, unquote. My uh, South Korean friends were not notably impressed with that sentiment. You know, but you find that Trump has clearly started to pull away you know, some working class folks from this. And working class people know what you know, it means for people to die. They've had people in the military die. I mean, the, my pastor's nephew was killed in uh, Afghanistan. People in my congregation wonder why Kevin Jeske died. You know, the point is that these are things that have been brought home. And, and Sanders is clearly much more skeptical. Where he comes out on everything, it's not so clear. But he's very different from the internationalists. You know, he's very different from Obama, very different from Biden. A Sanders presidency, I think, would be a very different one. Both of those, I think, suggest the future is going to be a much more complicated debate where you're going to find more populists in the future who realize the real issue here is you're going to go out to the, uh, uh, the home of an assisted living homes and tell the elderly, they want to take your money and give it to the Europeans. 
I want you to have the money. You choose. And it's not hard to imagine where that choice is going to come. You may very well find a coalition of younger people who tend to be much more skeptical <coughs> of military intervention already, and the elderly who are thinking about where's that money going, what's happening to the programs I've been promised and I will be relying on. And I think the critical kind of lesson for you all, and then I'll, is we can have a conversation, which is it makes sense for countries like Australia to start thinking about a future <laughs> in which the US is not doing everything it does today. And a world in which that foreign policy could change quite dramatically. You, just, you see the foreign policy of uh, Donald Trump, and it's, he's a unique character. Nevertheless, this is somebody who can announce today, I want all the troops to come home. And then tomorrow, he'll say, I want them to stay. And then the next day, he'll say, no, I'm going to send them off to do But you could imagine in the future, if a financial crisis hits Washington, people might suddenly say, that's it. Close those bases. Bring those folks home. You know, decommission those naval vessels. It's worth starting to think about and what are the alternatives in terms of regional cooperation, your own military forces, the role of countries like India. We see uh, the president over there. India is a very important country when you're starting to think about China. The good news on China, of course, is that China is surrounded by countries that it's all, it has been at war with. You know, over the years, recently, you know, you know, the last century or so, you think of Russia, India, Vietnam, Korea, Japan. It's not as if China doesn't have its own sets of issues, and these are issues which can be useful for countries in East Asia who are very concerned about the future and the question of their own form of containment, potentially. <laughs> it's not going to be an easy issue here, but I think what's critical is to start thinking ahead, that to continue to rely upon the United States, given the changing politics, the economic problems the US has at home, and quite honestly, the sheer bungling that the US has shown in many of its foreign policy initiatives. This is something where I think Australia is, will want to take the lead and think very seriously of how do you deal with those potential changes in the future. Asia, I think, is going to be the most critical strategic battleground of some sort. I hope not a military battleground, but certainly political and economic. It's going to be quite a challenge for all the countries involved. The worst thing you can do is to assume that Uncle Sam will take care of everything. I don't think that's likely. And I think the presidential election this year might very well move us pretty quickly down the road of major changes there. The question then is how do countries in the region react? Friend <laughs> we should remain friends, but very well the security relationships could significantly change. I think that's something which folks in Australia and folks elsewhere in the region have to be very concerned about. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Doug. Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks, Max. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Max. I think you might need your mic, uh, just for the purposes of... Um... No, well, this is the one that... Oh, oh, OK, great. Well, Doug, thanks for that. I think, um, you know, when I was hearing you talk, it reminded me of something that Lord Salisbury uh, once said, that the co communist era in politics is sticking to the carcasses of dead policies. And that's, that's essentially your thesis, yeah. that the policies that worked well in the Cold War should be jettisoned 30 years since the end of the Cold War. Um, some people here might say, we've heard your critique, particularly during the Cold War, with revisionist historians, William Appleman Williams, Gabriel Kolko, more recently Noam Chomsky, Michael Moore. How would you distinguish yourself from the left on this question of global retrenchment? Well, certainly looking at the Cold War, I think Ronald Reagan had it right. The Soviet Union was an evil empire. I think the containment made sense. You know, the question of what do you do when you have what you perceive as a potentially very aggressive power. 
And there's a real argument about how far did Stalin want to go and what would have happened. But I think that was a circumstance where Europe had been ravaged by war, very hard to take care of itself. Asia had been ravaged by war. Japan had been utterly defeated. Mao had just taken power shortly after the end of World War II took power in Beijing. So from that standpoint, I think American military role made a lot of sense. So the issue there is, again, circumstances change. The US at that moment needed to do what it needed to do. It's just and you roll that forward to 1989, and the question is, well, what do you need NATO for? It's much harder to make that case. So to my mind, the issue of retrenchment is circumstance-based. That it, uh, you know, it makes sense to rise and fall in terms of your international involvement, depending upon security concerns. The worst thing, I think, is just to assume whatever has been must always be, especially if you're paying the price. That at some point, does it make sense year in and year out to pay a price for what seems to be a relatively small danger, or are there other ways you can deal with it? Okay, well, for me, one way of distinguishing yourself and the Cato Institute, which has traditionally taken a non-interventionist position on these matters, from, say, the left, crudely putting it, is that you guys are free traders and you like a benign liberal international economic order. Don't you then need global hegemony to help prop up stability to allow that economic order to prosper? Well, the great first age of globalization was pre-World War I. I mean, you didn't have that global hegemon you know, necessarily. I mean, certainly naval power, uh, the United Kingdom was very helpful, but it was a time of rising uh, competition. So in fact, the challenges were there. The, the war is what destroyed that era of economic uh, you know, globalization. To say that it is useful to have a global economic order of free trade, and it's useful to have a dominant hegemon, presumably a positive one, uh, benign one, to maintain that, is fine, that doesn't necessarily mean it makes sense for that hege potentially hegemonic power to undertake that burden. And I think this is where, again, the, the end of the Cold War allows one to start thinking more creatively. Who should maintain oil, you know, the, uh, the Persian Gulf being oil, uh, open for oil shipments? Well, why not Japan? Why not Europe? You know, I think this is where one has to start thinking about these are countries that have grown economically, are more dependent on energy than the United States, have the capability. You know, think of ways to internationalize that in a way that reduces the burden. Okay, but what about the costs of global retrenchment, which is essentially what you're arguing? Wouldn't that just embolden regional powers like Russia and China? See, I'm not sure what it means. I mean, I think China and Russia vary dramatically in this case. And my view is that Russia is a declining power. Russia is a pre-1914 great power. It basically says, don't muck with us, take us into account, we want secure borders, but I don't see much beyond that. Yeah. Uh, John Mearsheimer, who was here a few months ago, calls Russia a giant gas station. Yeah, I mean, a gas station with nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I just don't believe that Russia has, I mean, you know, the whole, it, Crimea had been part of Russia, it was given away by Khrushchev. I mean, people joke that was Khrushchev even sober when he gave it away. Uh, you know, this is, you know, Khrushchev probably gave it away. He was fighting for the premiership. He was fighting for dominance. G he give it to the Ukrainian, you know, provincial chief, basically. I mean, I, so I look at Russian behavior as being odious, but not particularly threatening. And I think the main thing there is that from a Russian standpoint, the expansion of NATO is a bad thing. And to talk about bringing Georgia and Ukraine into NATO, and I, I tell people, flip it around. I mean, Americans have a very hard time seeing the rest of the world 
But uh, my view is, if what if you know in the United in, in North America, the Russians had helped sponsor a street push against the elected president in Mexico, who was viewed as pro-American, and then were caught on uh, you know tape talking about who they wanted to install in place of the person they had helped overthrow, and then discussed bringing in Mexico into the Warsaw Pact. I can assure you, people in Washington would go, excuse the phrase, batshit. They would go nuts. They wouldn't sit around and say, oh, you know, this is a, no. And they would do whatever they thought it took, whether it be CIA assassinations, black jaw, I mean, they'd do anything. The point is, you start looking at it from a Russian standpoint, you understand a bit more of why they, and it doesn't justify what they did, but it's important to understand. You know, if, if Putin is the next Hitler, he hasn't done a very good job. His conquests are some control over South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Boy, those are real winners, I can assure you. <laughs> He's got some control over the Donbass, and even Ukrainians wonder if they want the Donbass. And he's got Crimea back, which is primarily Sebastopol. I mean, I think the, the home of the Russian Black Sea right. fleet. Yeah. I think that was probably the biggest issue there. So my view is that it's a nasty power, but if the, if the Germans and French and British and Spanish and Italians and others can't deal with that, it's really their problem, not ours. Okay. Well, let's deal with uh, one of your critics, Thomas Wright, whom you'll be debating on ABC's Radio National with me this week. He says in the current issue of Foreign Affairs, this is the lead article of the New York-based Foreign Affairs magazine, the argument that the likes of Bandau put forward... I wish he'd used my name. He didn't. But, 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 but this, is, this is his argument. That <laughs> you're representing a perilous gamble, according to Thomas Wright from Brookings. Why? Because regional conflicts often end up implicating US interests. They might thus end up drawing the US back in after it has left, resulting in a much more dangerous venture than heading off the conflict in the first place by staying. Well, anything is possible, but there are a lot of regional conflicts which the U.S., to its credit, has not gotten involved in. I mean, I think about the Iran-Iraq war. Horrendous, million casualties. I mean, the U.S. got indirectly involved by supporting Saddam Hussein, of all things. I mean, again, if you think about the permutations of American foreign policy, we decide we've got to take out Saddam Hussein because he's the new Hitler. Well, back in the 1980s, we supported Saddam Hussein, including helping him make chemical weapons, which he used against the Iranians. And, of course, the Iranians remember that. That uh, you know, that was a war we didn't have to get involved in, and thankfully we didn't. I think Henry Kissinger in the 1980s said, it's too bad both sides can't lose. Yeah, a comment <laughs> some people made about the Soviets and the, the Nazi Germany in, in World War II, exactly. You know, it strikes me that the U.S., the, the reason the U.S. got involved in Korea, I think, was very heavily Cold War, and that was circumstance-based. Much harder, I think, to make the argument the U.S. needed to be involved in Vietnam. You know, one can look at... Lots of areas where the U.S. can make a choice whether you get involved. I don't think it requires it. Okay, but what about um, the Obama administration's decision to withdraw U.S. forces from Iraq in 2011? Didn't that just allow a strategic vacuum to be filled by the Sunni jihadists known as Islamic State? That's a classic case in point. Well, that's, that's the neoconservative argument, but it's factually wrong. The U.S. troops came out because George... W. Bush, with 140,000 troops there, could not get a status of forces agreement through the Iraqi parliament. The U.S. will not put troops in a society like that and set the, send them off to be, uh, you, know, you know, through that judicial system. The point is the Iraqis refused to create the treaty that would have allowed them. So Obama simply followed the Bush withdrawal. And on the notion that leaving a few thousand troops there would have papered everything over, this is a place where the U.S. invasion triggered a sectarian war. 
I mean, the, the low estimate of the number of Iraqi dead is 200,000. There's a thing called the Iraqi body count. That's the number which they can, they can actually confirm. There were reports, lists somewhere they died. Now, the Iraqi body count folks say, of course, in a conflict like that, lots of deaths never get recorded. I mean, you, the body gets thrown in the river. Who knows what happens? You're going to go through a war zone to take a body to a morgue. No, it's not going to happen. So they suggest doubling those numbers is probably more accurate. And there are some estimates going up to a million. I mean, the problem is knowing these numbers is very hard. But that was the conflict that was going on in Iraq. The sectarians that came out of that, the idea that a few thousand Americans would have done what? I mean, I'm always amazed at this notion, well, if we'd left somebody there to do what? Fight? Americans were tired of that. We, we're done with that. If you don't fight, then what? You're a target. And you're a target of both sides. The most dangerous man, I think, in Iraq today is Muqtada Sadr, who's a Shia, who has become a nationalist, who's threatening American troops now if they stay. People like him would have worked with the Sunnis against America if we'd... St so I think it's an illusion that America could have pacified... OK, what about Tom Wright's other argument that global retrenchment leads to nuclear proliferation? His argument is US allies, no longer protected by Uncle Sam, would be tempted to acquire nuclear weapons of their own. Why court that danger? Well, he should read what I wrote. I've written a couple of articles for Foreign Affairs on nuclear proliferation. Uh, my, my snarky response is, and what's the problem? Now, the, my point simply is, we assume, without debate, without discussion, the world is a better place if America promises to defend lots of countries with nuclear weapons. Now, do you believe in a crisis the President of the United States will risk Los Angeles to protect Sydney if we're in a confrontation with China. I don't care what he has said. Do you believe he would? Is the President of the United States really going to risk Seoul, Los Angeles to protect Seoul if North Korea has nuclear weapons that can reach the American homeland? If China and Japan are involved in a war, will the United States risk the security of its own cities to protect Tokyo? Well, I don't know. And I have to tell you, if I was involved in that, I'd be saying, hell no. Why on earth does the US want to get involved in that kind of devastation? What interest is at stake? So I think the, my point on nuclear proliferation is proliferation is a bad. The more countries that have nukes, I think, is bad for lots of reasons. But the presumption that the US should become the nuclear guarantor of lots of different countries in varying circumstances against varying regimes is presuming an awful lot from the United States. And the danger in all of these circumstances is who has the greater interest at stake? You know, the, the Chinese brought this up in a discussion of Taipei or Taiwan, where a Chinese general said to a US official, you won't risk Los Angeles for Taipei. And I cannot imagine how a US president would go on uh, the TV and say, we're going nuclear toe-to-toe -to -toe with China to protect Taiwan. Now, Taiwan's a wonderful place. It should be independent. You know, I mean, it, it de facto is. It should be recognized as such. Taiwanese people have made a country. It's democratic. It's capitalist. It's a great place. They should be free. The notion that China should extend its control is outrageous. But it matters a huge amount to China, and it just doesn't matter in the same intensity. And the intensity is what's, what matters here. You're starting to talk about going to war, what risks are you willing to take. And I think, to me, the proliferation issue is one that it, this, we need a discussion. And among other things, this is an area where I think that one should play poker. I've long said we should tell the Chinese, you guys don't care about North Korea because you think we will stop South Korea and Japan potentially from getting nuclear weapons. 
forget it. I mean, if you don't do anything on North Korea, why do you expect us to be in the middle of this? Why, why do we care if our allies get nuclear weapons? And you start playing a little bluff there to try to, because I think at the moment the US is expected to take on huge responsibilities. Maybe a world of proliferation is a less bad option, not a good one, but less bad. We'll take that up in Q&A, but before we do that, um, let's focus on Asia. John Mearsheimer was here uh, last August, and uh, he'd agree with a lot of your analysis in the sense that uh, America should uh, get out of Europe, get out of the Middle East, but where he would distinguish himself from you is to say America should be more focused on Asia because in this region there really is a serious uh, threat to the status quo, and that's coming from Beijing. Uh, and so he supports a US-led policy of containment of China. You obviously oppose that, but isn't the risk of US retreat from Asia mean that China will become more assertive in Asia, which is why countries like India and Vietnam, an old Cold War foe of the United States, are clamoring for US security guarantees? Well, of course they want US security guarantees. What country on earth doesn't? I mean, that's the problem. I mean, the difficulty here, and I think Mearsheimer is important because he does distinguish, and this is one where I would emphasize, if you want America engaged in Asia, you should desperately desire that America get out of the Middle East and Europe. I mean, the US cannot forever be the dominant power everywhere. That will never work. So the best hope is for the US to actually prioritize, which is utterly inconsistent with Washington thinking. But the notion that you actually decide some places are more important than others. I think China is the, the great issue here. The problem, and I think this is where part of it is a question of prioritizing do I care who controls the Spratly Islands or the Parasols or Scarborough Shoal or you know, the uh, Senkakus or Dayayus, you know, whoever's name you want to use on these things? I'm much more concerned about the independence of countries than I am necessarily about the territorial disputes. So the question of kind of what is the US role, it's one thing to say the US should guarantee independence of allied countries. It's quite another thing to say the US should be on the front line. Last year, I mean, President Duterte, I mean, if you want a crazier person than Donald Trump, it's Rodrigo Duterte, who hates America. But then last year, the Chinese rammed and sank a Filipino vessel. And Duterte announces, I want the Americans to send the fleet. They should start bombing. I will be there with them. And I look at that, and you're saying, are you out of your frigging mind? I mean, that's one of the dangers of yeah. security guarantees, is suddenly you give power to somebody like that who conceivably can drag you into a yes. war. So I think the challenge for the US is how do you kind of be the backstop, the offshore balancer, you know, to a region that I think has the capability to tear. The good news here is that just as it's much cheaper for China to kind of deny US access, you know, it's at, you know, area denial, you know, whatnot, than uh, the US to impose, it's also cheaper for other countries in the region. It's building submarines, and this is where cooperation with India matters. Jap Filipinos are telling Japan they should do more militarily. This is transformational. I mean, I realize all the historical issues of Japan, but this is one of those moments where you start thinking about alternatives to relying on the U.S. to forever want to patrol East Asia, which is as far away from American interests. It's expensive to do. And where does this leave Australia? In 1998, you wrote an article for me at the Financial Review saying the ANZUS alliance should be scrapped. I take it that's your view. How does Australia respond to this new strategic terrain where China will be more assertive and America, if you and Bernie Sanders and possibly Donald Trump in a second term have their way, withdraws from the region? How does, it, how does all this affect Australia, Doug? 
Well, one thing is I think that one can have you know, defense cooperation relationships without security guarantees. And to me, that's a very important one. That there are lots of places for cooperation, joint training, and again, thinking about potential contingencies of working together without having a formal defense alliance. I think what really matters here is for Australia to look within the region and the question of how do you build relationships within the region. I mean, we've even seen Malaysia and Indonesia having their own problems with China in terms of territorial disputes. The question is how do you try to build that into a much more cohesive response. And I think that, you know, to, that what you want to do with China is create a price for them. I mean, they have a lot of problems. Forget you know, coronavirus. I mean, this is a society that may very well grow old before it grows rich. I mean, despite the elimination of the one-child policy, the demography, you know, fertility has not improved. It's gone down. The you know, the, that's an aging population far more accelerating than other societies. You know, far too many men. I mean, all sorts of social issues coming out of that. Highly indebted, overextended state enterprises. And I think the political situation is very unsettled. I think that you know, it's essentially moving back to Maoism. It's creating you know, <laughs> the kind of new personality cult, the attempt to you know, cement party and uh, you know, Xi's authority. I think in many ways this is creating a very unstable situation within. So I don't think that China is anywhere close to being the 800-pound gorilla at the moment. It's a future issue that needs to be dealt with. Yes, and a reminder that an inward-looking nationalist China can be just as destabilizing as an assertive China Abroad, Q&A, first question. Yes, sir. And just wait for the mic. Emily. China seems to get its way through soft power. Would it be cheaper for the Americans to use soft power, and do they have the personality to use it? Well, part of the problem is in free societies, and I don't mean just the United States, but I mean I think of in Australia and I mean all others, it's sometimes hard to corral that soft power. I mean, that soft power works in ways in which... I mean, I think having Chinese students come to America and come to Australia is extraordinarily important. You know, they are immersed in a free society. Now, there's lots of stuff that happens. Some of them keep to themselves. I mean, the Chinese government, I mean, interferes in a lot of ways, which I think it's one question for us is how do you try to limit some of that, the ability of the Chinese government to oversee and kind of spy on their own students. But that's one element where I think we do very well. I think of things like the issue of websites and how do you refer to Taiwan. I mean, my reaction is the, Taiwanese, or the, the Chinese should be told to go jump. You know, okay, you, know, you can tell me what goes on the Chinese language website, fine. But you don't get to announce, decide what goes on the English language website in the United States. But if China goes after every airline individually, who is going to stand up to them? If you could get the airlines to work together, where this is you know, basically the association of all the international airlines say no. We're not. China's not going to throw them all out. The question of how can we try to find a way to corral some of that soft power, and I think that's very important, that uh, the soft power matters a lot. It's, I mean, military power also matters. I mean, it's a very different form of power, but it's extraordinarily important. But I think the soft power is one that we should try to rely on, but it may take some work. I mean, how do you try to bring companies together? How do you aid them in that? Where can government... And I do think there are points maybe we want government to get involved in some of those things in terms of trying to buttress companies that want to respond to, you know, Chinese... You know, okay. like that. Richard Bernowski. Thanks. Uh, two quick ones, Doug. Uh, as a professional diplomat over 34 years, I always admired so much the uh, perseverance, the knowledge, the perspective and the hard work of my State Department colleagues overseas. Donald Trump has done his best to destroy the State Department because he apparently has no 
time for professional diplomats and puts people like his daughter and others in charge. So my question to you here is, do you think the State Department, which still has a certain esprit de corps, could build its way back? And secondly, uh, you talk down the American economy, it's bankrupt, and yet Trump talks it up. Who's right? Well, the economy is doing well. The federal budget is awful. And at some point, the price has to be paid. I mean, so, so I think that's the challenge, is that right now the U.S. has benefited from very low interest rates. I don't think those go on forever. So as the debt goes up and interest rates go up, I mean, Congressional Budget Office, which does budget estimates, has estimated that in not too many years, the U.S. may be spending something like $800 billion a year on interest. I mean, that's more than the U.S. spends in the military now. I mean, that comes off the top. I mean, so, the, the, so the, the challenge, I think, all of that eventually really hits the U.S. economy. Americans do not want to, uh, you know, kind of have to pay taxes. So we live in this bizarre world where everybody just, and Republicans as well as Democrats, just spend as much as they want but won't raise taxes. So I think that the long-term threat to the economy is, uh, is very serious. And the first one was? State Department. Say, the, no, I mean, the State Department is critically important. I mean, people... I mean, the challenge, so I mean, like the, the George W. Bush and company, I, mean, I have a friend who was in the State Department Intelligence Bureau who said that the top leadership in the Bush administration did not, knew, did not know who uh, Sistani was, the most important uh, Shia cleric in Iraq. I mean, he's still there. He's very important. The U.S. government had no clue who this person was. You know, as they're invading that country. There, uh, there was a meeting that uh, you know, some uh, you know, folks had with George W., and it appeared he was not conversant in the differences between Sunni and Shia. Now, obviously, State Department people know this. That, and, but they were treated as enemies. They were treat, you know, the view was these, you know, these people cannot be trusted. So obviously, if you don't tap that knowledge, your policies get pretty bad. The question, I suppose, is can it survive four more years? I think that it can be rebuilt. I mean, I think that they've lost a lot of good people, but it's a desirable post. I think there are a lot of people who'd love to get back in if they thought they would be appreciated and would have opportunities. Four more years of present policy, and it's not just the president. I mean, I think Pompeo is a disaster in, in many ways. How do you, you know, what happens in another four years? That worries me, because you may very well dig out you know, that accumulated knowledge and what have you replaced it with. And then, I mean, the US does badly enough now trying to understand these places. You know, that, I mean, Yemen, I mean, people write about how it's a proxy for Iran. It's not. Now, the Iranians are helping them. But you know anything about 60 years of Yemeni history? They've been at war the entire time. The role of the Houthis, Salah, I mean, all this, they're horrendously complex. You need somebody who knows this. Remember the heart of the Syrian civil war, essentially a sectarian battle between Sunnis and Shia, or Alawites. And Sarah Palin, the former Republican candidate for vice president, said, uh, uh, can't Allah sort it out? <laughs> Emily. Hello. Um, following along that same line about uh, the U.S.'s fiscal irresponsibility, uh, do you think that because China holds such a large proportion, the largest foreign holder of U.S. debt, that that poses a risk with Trump's sanctions on China to the U.S. economy and the, their economic security and security falling from that economic security? Uh, no, for two reasons. One of which is China's kind of cut back on some of the purchases because even the Chinese are concerned about U.S. fiscal responsibility, which tells you something. But the other, I mean, basically, the debt is like you have a hand grenade you know, between us, and I'm China, and I'm going to pull the pin and hold it 
now you better do what I want, Tom. Well, great, I'll blow us both up. You start selling that debt off, the debt value drops and your own holdings lose value. I think from China's standpoint, it's a wonderful thing to throw out there. We have all this economic power over you. It doesn't strike me in practice to be very useful. That, uh, you know, you, you certainly look at that and wonder, are there areas of influence? And this is, I mean, Australia's run into this as well, the question of Chinese influence within a society, whether it be economic, political, or the way, backdoor ways, Maybe some of that debt purchases might provide some of that, but I think generally it probably doesn't give them a lot. Okay, now before we go to vote of thanks, I have to ask you this before we leave. If Bernie Sanders does indeed win the Democrat presidential nomination, whom would you support in November, given that you clearly don't like Donald Trump, but you've been a long time opponent of socialism? Sanders or Trump? Don't, don't well, see, see, to get my answer, you probably have to put a gun to my head and say, <laughs> I, I have to vote for somebody. I mean, on foreign policy, I'd prefer Sanders, though, the, the, because I think he actually would follow through on his beliefs, while Trump, who knows, you know. And, and Trump, uh, in fairness, is surrounded by a lot of hawkish advisors. Well, but, but he's appointed them. I mean, the point, yeah. it was not like somebody imposed them <laughs> on him. I mean, those are his own appointments. I mean, the, though the challenge there, of course, is Sanders is completely focused on economics. So the question is, what attention would he give to foreign policy? How much effort would he put into it? <laughs> He'd be busy out there trying to bankrupt me on all the spending <laughs> programs that he has. It, it would be a very tough choice. I mean, if Trump was not the person he is, uh, it would be a lot easier to say I'd support him despite some disagreements, and some are important in immigration. Yeah, and uh, but to be fair, yeah. tax cuts and deregulation on his watch have helped boost the, boom the economy. It's, but he is such a terrible person, and I do think that it's very corrosive of American civic life, that uh, the way he responds to people, the demonization, the... And Democrats are part of the polarization. It's not just him. This is a process that both sides work on. But I, what, what I see among you both, I mean, I have friends on both sides. I mean, it becomes very difficult to even talk about politics. <laughs> I, I do worry long term with that. So it's a very tough choice. I know. Well, Robert Gates, the former Defense Secretary in both the Bush and Obama administrations, he was once asked, what's the greatest national security threat that the United States faces? And he says, the one square mile between the Capitol yeah. building and the White House. Yeah. That's many, I think much of that's true.